been singing about heaven's throne. James's prayer has reminded us that there are other forces at work in this world. Unholy forces. In a few moments we're going to look at a section of Daniel that deals at least in part with spiritual warfare. But before that we're going to sing a song written quite some time ago, but it reminds us that really nothing has changed. Turn with me, please, to Daniel chapter 10. In the Church Bible, that's page 895. Daniel chapter 10, and I'll read verses 1 down to verse 19. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips. And I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of the finest gold round his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, And as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face towards the ground and was speechless. Then the one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone. And I can hardly breathe. 
Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. This is God's word. Daniel chapter 10 is the introduction to the final vision of the book. The vision and its explanation are found in chapters 11 and 12. But tonight we'll deal just with this introductory section. When I first started looking at this, I thought it was about the fact that there's a war going on that we can't see. The more I got into it, I think it's equally about the kind of person who has significance in this war we can't see. In verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, we find a man who cares. Verse 1 tells us where we are here in relation to chapter 9. Cyrus was the Persian emperor, the official conqueror of Babylon. But it seems he put Darius the Mede in charge of Babylon, like an under ruler. So the third year of Cyrus means the third year after he took over Babylon and put Darius in charge. So chapter 10 takes place three years after chapter 9. Chapter 9 took place in the first year Darius was in charge of Babylon. Why is this worth noticing? Well, if you were here last week, remember what Daniel was concerned about in chapter 9. He knew from reading scripture that God had promised to send the exiles back to Israel after 70 years. Daniel knew those 70 years were up, and he pleaded with God to keep his promise. And sure enough, as we saw last week, God kept his promise. In the same year Daniel prayed the prayer of chapter 9, Cyrus issued a decree giving the Israelite exiles permission to go home. He called on them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Last time we read that decree in Ezra chapter 1. Now we know Daniel has been in exile since he was a teenager. And yet we know, too, that his heart has never left Jerusalem. Chapter 6 told us that three times a day, every day, he opened his windows towards Jerusalem and he prayed. His prayer in chapter 9 showed us how much he longed for desolate Jerusalem to be rebuilt. So with all that in mind, it's a bit of a surprise to start reading chapter 10 and find Daniel still in Babylon. The decree allowing the exiles to go home is now a couple of years old. But he's still here. Why? Well, of course, the text doesn't tell us. But we do know Daniel was probably in his 80s at this point. We know that the job of the returning exiles was to rebuild the city. It was in rubble. And Daniel in his 80s could not have contributed very much to that. It may have been that he just didn't have the physical strength for the journey and for the work. 
It may be that Darius thought Daniel's work as an overseer in Babylon was just too important to let him go. But whatever the reason, Daniel is not in Jerusalem. And yet, he is pouring himself out to help Jerusalem. Look again at verse 2. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. Daniel is still doing what he did before Cyrus issued his decree. Look back to chapter 9, verse 3. Daniel says, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. His prayers in chapter 9 were for the exile to end. But he knows very well the decree allowing the exiles to go home is only the beginning. Then the real hard work begins. Look how God responded to Daniel's prayers in chapter 9. Look down to verse 25 in chapter 9. The end of verse 25. God says, It will be rebuilt, that's Jerusalem, with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And sure enough, the book of Nehemiah tells us the returning exiles were opposed by their enemies. There were many who did not want Jerusalem rebuilt. Half of the workers had to be used as guards to protect those who were doing the building. Nehemiah tells us those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Daniel may well have heard reports of the difficulties. But at the very least, God has told him there will be difficulties. And so here he is, an old man, far away in Babylon, and yet working alongside those who hold the bricks in their hand in Jerusalem. Daniel is interceding for their success. Last week we saw that his prayers were fueled by God's promise to send the exiles home. God responded to those prayers by promising that the city would be rebuilt, but in times of trouble. So with this new promise, Daniel gets back on his knees, and he gets back to work, praying for what God has promised. Sinclair Ferguson sums it up like this. He devoted himself to seeking blessing from the God of heaven. He consecrated himself to the advance of God's kingdom. So who is playing a more important role in the rebuilding of Jerusalem? The workers on the wall in Jerusalem? Or Daniel on his knees in Babylon? Of course, the answer is that both are vital. Those on the wall, though, are more visible, of course. But the lesson of this chapter is that the real battleground is one that can't be seen with the human eye. 
The great victories of history are fought and won behind the scenes of history. To the human eye, Daniel does not appear to be on the front line. But he takes his work with deadly seriousness. He has not stayed in Babylon for an easy ride in the last few years of his life. We meet him here in the middle of a three-week fast. I think there's a very significant application for us here. I'm going to read a paragraph to you written by a man called William Still. He was a pastor in the city of Aberdeen. He says this, I was a minister only a few months when an old lady sent for me. When I called, she said, I've been praying for many years that God would send a man a little bit out of the usual to do a work for the Lord here. From what I hear, you are the answer to my prayer. She told me this, I've been a widow for 17 years. Formerly, I had a Bible class of over 100 girls. Many of them have since gone to the mission field. Yet it was only after my dear husband died, and I was by then rather frail, and able only to sit at my fireside and pray, that the Lord gave me this burden, and said to me, You have served me long with these girls and in your local church, but this is the task of your life, reserved for you in your 80s. You have to pray for something in Aberdeen. Something here means something powerful for God. William still went on to minister for more than 40 years in Aberdeen. God used his ministry to change the lives of thousands of people over those years, including students who dispersed themselves all over the world serving the gospel. Who's to say whether it was William Still's work or this unnamed lady's work who had more impact on Aberdeen and on the world? Behind the scenes of history, we find workers, warriors like that lady and like Daniel. As a church, we give thanks for those here who can work hard in visible ways. Leading, teaching, fixing things, setting things up, visiting, administrating. But we have an increasing number of older members. Those who are able to do less of those visible kinds of work. What if those older members came to see intercessory prayer as the task of their life? Reserved for them in their 80s, maybe their 90s. I hope most of us here try to use the monthly prayer diary. But imagine if our older members committed to pray through the diary once a week, twice a week. And I'm quite sure that some already have a big commitment to intercession. But what if we had 20 or 30 doing that work every week? Committing 
say to an hour or more a day just to pray for the members and the work of this church. Of course, there's no lower age limit on this commitment. But maybe those who've set down other responsibilities have the time or can make the time more easily for this kind of work. And that doesn't mean that this work would be easy. It will not be easy. But it is vital. It's necessary kingdom work. So I'd ask you to consider it. Ask yourself whether God may have this as the task of your life. No matter how you've served him in the past, this work might be the most important thing you'll ever do. I've often encouraged us to see that Christians never really retire from serving the king. But that doesn't mean we always serve him in the same way throughout our lives. And nor does it mean that the work we do praying by our fireside in our 80s is any less important than what we did in our 30s and 40s and 50s. One more thing before we move on from this. You cannot do this kind of work unless you care. Those who work in public can be motivated by all sorts of reasons. Some of them good and some of them bad. The great temptation in public work is to do it for reputation, for pats on the back. But this kind of work, you have to care. If you attempt this because I've made you feel guilty, you won't last a week. There's no doubt that Daniel cared. No one behaves like he did in private unless they care. Who's ever going to know about this work Daniel is doing? And even if people in Babylon do find out, who's going to praise him for his work? What does it matter to them what happens away in Jerusalem? We saw last week that God responds to the man or woman who cares. In response to Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, God gave him insight into his eternal plans. A.W. Tozer has said, God has nothing to say to the frivolous man or woman. But he has plenty to say and plenty to show to the man or woman who cares. Look how he responds to Daniel here. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold round his waist. His body was like chrysolite his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sound of a multitude. Daniel is given a vision of the king. Earlier, Rose read to us from Revelation. John's vision of the risen Lord 
It seems very likely that here Daniel is, is seeing the same person John saw. One writer says, everything about him expresses power, beauty, majesty, glory, and honor. This is a vision of the Lord in all his glory. How many men and women have seen this while they're still on the earth? Not many. But on the rare occasion when God does give a gift like this, he gives it to those who care. Those who live to see him glorified. That's how Daniel lived. And he was singled out for this sight of God's glory. Verse 7 tells us the man with Daniel didn't see it. And Daniel himself is overwhelmed by what he sees. Verse 8, I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Verse 9, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. Last week we said that prayer is just as much about changing us as it is about changing our circumstances. And here, as Daniel pours himself out for God's glory, he comes face to face with God's glory. And we might ask, well, what's the point of this vision? The point, surely, is to show Daniel and us that he is not on the periphery of things. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not holding a sword or carrying bricks. But he's in touch with heaven. He has the ear of the Lord of heaven. Heaven's eye is on him. That's what this vision is about. As he fasts and prays, Daniel is at the center of the action, not the periphery. This becomes even more clear in what comes next. We get more information of the value heaven places on Daniel's work. He receives touches from heaven. It seems that a different figure comes to him now in verse 10. Probably Gabriel. And in these verses, he touches Daniel three times. Each touch has a different result. The first touch gives a glimpse of the true battleground. Look at verse 10. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up. For I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. The angel says he has come to show and explain a vision to Daniel. That will come, as we've said, in verses, chapters 11 and 12. But here... 
Daniel, the one who is highly esteemed in heaven, the one who fights for the kingdom on his knees, is given a glimpse of the true battleground. One writer says, we see the curtain pulled back. We get an intriguing glimpse of the heavenly realities that stand behind human conflict. Daniel is shown here that the visible events of history are tightly bound up with events in heavenly places. Why did Daniel fast and pray for three weeks? Why not two? It may well be that Daniel didn't know why. And maybe he simply knew he was in a struggle and he had to see it through. But now the angel tells him what was going on while he prayed. The angel says, I said in response on the first day you began to pray. But, verse 13, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Daniel battled in prayer for three weeks, maybe having no idea why. But all that time, this angel was battling the prince of the Persian kingdom. Behind the visible scenes of history, an unseen supernatural war is going on. Apparently, the devil has his princes, powerful, supernatural beings assigned to certain areas. And in opposition stands God's angelic army with its princes. It seems that Michael is assigned to Israel. Down in verse 21, which we'll look at next time, Michael is described to Daniel as your prince. Michael will be mentioned three more times in the Bible. Over in chapter 12, then in the New Testament in Jude and in Revelation. As the workers in Jerusalem were building with their swords in their hands, as their human enemies were harassing them, and as Daniel fasted and prayed in Babylon, a spiritual battle was taking place. A battle that mirrored the events on earth. In fact, it's better to say the events on earth mirror what's going on in heaven. As Daniel struggled in prayer, how could he have known he was contributing to a cosmic battle? And when he gets this glimpse into what was going on, look how he reacts in verse 15. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face towards the ground and was speechless. Since his earliest days, Daniel has been committed to prayer. He has been convinced of the importance of prayer. But how could he have known that his prayer made him part of a war in heaven? He can barely take it in. Just occasionally, God gives one of his people a peek behind the scenes like this. But Daniel's peak is recorded here for our instruction today. It's here to teach us about the full dimensions of reality. A prayer meeting is never just a prayer meeting. 
Our private prayers are never insignificant. This peek behind the scenes assures us of that. A week or so ago, we heard about a Christian couple not being allowed to foster because of their Christian beliefs. You probably caught it in the news. And we've all been following the unrest in the Middle East lately. We're hearing from Robert each week in church about the persecuted church. What lies behind the news reports that we hear? Or what about the number of abortions in this country? What about the push to legalize assisted suicide? The voices saying that the NHS shouldn't be trying to save premature babies. Or what about those men and women who sit in church for decades and never respond to the gospel? What about the sin that you struggle with month after month, year after year? What's behind all these things? Daniel chapter 10 is here to show us. All these things on earth reflect a war in heavenly places. And somehow, amazingly, our prayers involve us in the center of the action. When you pray about the situation in Libya, when you pray about young girls who are being pressurized into having abortions, when you pray about an unsaved friend or relative, you are contributing, you're participating in the battles going on in heavenly places. Second Corinthians says this about your unsaved friend or relative. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If we prayed with this in mind, wouldn't it give a bit more energy to our prayers? A bit more bite? When we pray, we're fighting for their souls. Maybe if we prayed with this in mind, we'd do a bit more of Daniel's pleading and mourning and fasting in prayer. There are powerful spiritual forces that want our loved ones in hell. Powerful spiritual forces that want more babies aborted, more marriages destroyed, more violence and oppression in the Middle East, more sin in my life, in your life. And when we pray, we need to have this big picture in our minds. Daniel is speechless as he considers what the angel has told him. And the angel touches him again. Verse 16. Then the one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. The angel's second touch gives Daniel a grasp of his own weakness. It's almost as if the angel's touch enables Daniel to be honest about his inadequacy, 
That seems odd. Haven't we just seen what a great work Daniel is engaged in? But in fact, this touch from the angel is a very precious gift. It's a blessing for you and I to know how weak we are. Can you imagine how easily pride could have destroyed Daniel? In both chapters 9 and 10, God's messenger has called him highly esteemed. In the 10th commandment, the same word is translated covet. Daniel and his prayers are coveted by God. He has been shown how his prayers put him at the center of heavenly action. So it's a great gift for him now to be shown his weakness. The Apostle Paul was blessed with a similar gift. He was given an ailment that was a daily reminder to him of his weakness. We don't know what it was, but this is how he describes it. First, he mentions revelations that God has blessed him with, just as he had blessed Daniel. Then Paul says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's knowledge of his own weakness was a gift from God. And so was Daniel's. It prepared Daniel for the angel's third touch. Look at verse 18. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man, highly esteemed, he said. Peace. Be strong now. Be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. This third touch gives Daniel strength from heaven. Daniel has been enabled to see his own weakness. So now he makes no mistake about where his strength and power come from. None of us would ever wish for a thorn in our side. But God often chooses to show us our weakness before he fills us with his power then there will be no mistake about where the power comes from. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, We need to fight with spiritual weapons. And one of those God-given weapons is prayer. Let's ask God to make us men and women who care about this fight. 
Let's ask him to give us the spiritual insight we need. The insight to see behind the scenes of daily life and world events. And let's close our service by remembering that the outcome of this great war is not in doubt. The individual battles may be fierce, but over all of it stands the Lord of history, the Lord who appeared to Daniel in this brief vision in chapter 10. Over all of it stands the Lord of history. There is a higher throne than all this world has known. Let's stand to sing this song again. The answer there is not that Peter should forgive 77 times or 490 times and then stop forgiving. No, the point is he should forgive on a much grander scale than he had previously thought. And I think that's also the point of the 77s here in Daniel 9. Gabriel is saying, don't just look at this little point in history, Daniel. Think on a grander scale. God does. So the 77s are a way of talking about the rest of human history. And Gabriel mentions what's still to come in human history. Verse 24. Sin will be put to an end. Sin will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Vision and prophecy will be sealed up. That probably means they will be finally fulfilled in an ultimate way. And the Most Holy One will be anointed. That's the summary of what God has planned. It will be fulfilled during the rest of history. In other words, between Daniel's day and the very end of history. Then in verse 25, Gabriel assures Daniel that God will keep his promise about the return from exile. He mentions the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And sure enough, the first verse in the book of Ezra says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. God keeps his promises. But look how Gabriel puts the, returns, the return from exile in the context of the rest of history. He has spoken about 77s. 
The decree and the rebuilding of the temple take up only the first of those sevens in God's timetable. Then after another 62 sevens, the anointed one will come. The anointed one is the Messiah, the Christ. Seven plus 62 equals 69. The point is, Daniel is being told that as important as the rebuilding of the temple is to God, it's not really that important. It's much less important than the arrival of the anointed one. When he comes, God's plans are close to their climax. As close as 69 is to 70. So if you're still with me, we've said there's general agreement that the 77s is not meant to be a literal number of weeks or years. It's a way of talking about the whole of the rest of history. The rebuilding of the temple that has filled Daniel's horizon takes up the equivalent of one of those sevens. Then the Messiah will come after another 62 sevens. His arrival is close to the climax of God's plans. There's only one seven left of the 70. But, verse 26, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The translation in the NIV footnote may be better. The anointed one will be cut off, but not for himself. You can see that down at the bottom of your page if you have the NIV. And interpreters understand this as a reference to Jesus' death. He was cut off, but not for himself. Not for any guilt of his own. He died for the sins of others. That is how God would fulfill his plan to atone for sin. His son would die as our substitute. In Daniel's visions back in chapter 7 and chapter 8, God revealed that at the end of history, a powerful ruler would arise. He would set himself up in God's place. He would oppress God's people. That seems to be who the rest of our chapter is referring to, the rest of verses 26 and 27. Now certainly there is disagreement about that. Some see the ruler in these verses as the final anti-God figure. Some see him as just one of the long line of anti-God figures throughout history. But in any case, the basic point is the same. Since the cross of Christ, the world has been made ready for the end of history. If the whole of God's plan from Daniel to the end can be represented by 77s, then 69 of those sevens have already been worked out. God has opened up a way for men and women to be reconciled to him. On the cross, Jesus made atonement for sin. As the song says, the great redeeming work is done. The grand and full atonement made. God for a guilty world has died. 
there is only one more work to be done. That's the return of the risen, anointed king. The day when he returns to finally crush all evil. The day when he leads his people into an eternity in the true holy city, the new heaven and earth. Whether that day comes one week from now or 10 or 20 years from now or 600 years from now, God's plan has only one more great stage. The tapestry of history has only one more great scene, the return of the king. This chapter is about prayer. And earlier we asked, if God has already promised to do something, why pray for it? Well, one of the great lessons of this chapter is that prayer is just as much about changing us as it is about changing our circumstances. Daniel studied his Bible. He saw a great mountain peak among God's plans. The promise of a return from exile after 70 years. He gave himself to prayer. He came with a humble heart. He came with a desire for God's glory. With a reliance on God's mercy. He prayed for what God had promised to do. And what happened? His perspective was changed. His eyes were lifted up to see the greater heights of God's plans. A cross where sin would be atoned for. And a future day when sin and death would finally die. Prayer is just as much about changing us as it is about changing our circumstances. Prayers like Daniel's bring us into deeper fellowship with the God of history. And in fellowship with him, we take on more of his perspective. We see further than our own little dreams and ambitions. And by his grace, we become a little more like him. So let's pray with God's great plan in mind. Let's make sure we're ready for the end of history. And let's respond now as we sing, Let the earth resound with songs of praise. Mm -hmm.